On this week's episode of The Apex, we have the pleasure of welcoming a seasoned racing driver, coach, stunt driver, and commentator. Having competed at the top level of the junior formulas, Oliver Webb has gone on to win the European Le Mans Series, the Dubai 24 Hours, and the Gulf Historic Dubai Grand Prix in James Hunt's race-winning Hesketh. He joins us today to talk about his career highlights, his involvement in historic racing, and what it was like being a stunt driver for the Mission Impossible movies. Ollie, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks very much for having me. Is it true that when you were younger, you were a big, big Sterling Moss fan and you wrote a letter to him when you were 13? Yeah, I did. I, I mean, I must have been about 13. I can't specifically remember the age. I was super young. I was a fan not only of of him, but of quite a few different other people of, of similar ilk and era. And um, I'll be honest, as much as um, as much as it would be nice just to say it was just the one letter, I was uh, I definitely hedged my bets. And I remember spending uh, that week sending quite a few letters, actually, to various different people, including Nigel Mansell and uh, of the ones who replied. I even got letters back from uh, Max Mosley. And I think I got one from Bernie Eccleston at the time as well. So I was I was um, certainly spreading out, uh, hedging my bets to try and get a reply from those letters. And I still have them today. I actually keep them in my laptop folder, which I with my laptop that I take uh, everywhere with me just to kind of remind me and look back on every now and then. But yeah, I got handwritten replies from a, a lot of those people, which I was amazingly grateful for. Yeah, that's absolutely incredible. And and Sterling actually wrote back to you. I mean, can I ask what, what he said? I mean, I asked the usual typical, you know, how do I get into motorsport and what do I do? Um, and he was uh, very polite and very to the point in terms of this is what you have to do to, to get in motorsport and, and these are the things you need to do on the side of it and told me it was all about contacts and, and who you know as much as how quick you are. Um, corrected me on my grammar, which was the most embarrassing thing ever i remember being bright red reading that letter even though i was totally alone can't remember what i misspelled but it was it, it was something he just uh, corrected my grammar on so l- let's pretend i was really young <laughs> and was that sort of a big influence on your sort of desire to then go racing that must have given you quite a bit of motivation you know, hearing back from someone like that it did yeah because it's not it doesn't run in my family it's not something that i connected through motorsport through generations of of history and racing or karting or, or or even friends at school. So having a connection to people replying to me like that uh, of that ilk was incredible. So it, uh, it definitely strived me on to think there's there's hope to move forwards. And then from, from there, you've gone on to do some incredible things. I mean, you won the European Le Mans series in 2014 and the 24 Hours of Dubai in 2015, as well as competing in a, a whole host of other endurance races. What is it about endurance racing that is so special to you? Well, when I when I left the kind of single seater world um, after having raced in in most junior formulas all the way up to um, Formula One, I ended up in endurance. I wouldn't say by accident, but by naivety of when you're coming up through the ranks, Formula One is your goal, and it has to be. It has to be that that drive, that pinnacle focus. And then whatever happens when you fall off that single-seater ladder um, is where you typically end up. And that happens normally for most people to be in endurance racing. That's changed a little bit more these days where people start off aiming to drive in endurance racing. But ignorantly at the time, I was so focused on F1 that when I then got this opportunity to test for, for Alpine and go into endurance racing, 
it totally opened my mind and I, I, I never looked back towards any, any kind of single, not that I had the opportunity at that point, but it just, I enjoyed the camaraderie, the, the first time in my career ever from starting racing to actually want another driver to be as fast as you, i.e. your teammate. It's the first time I'd had teammates that weren't racing against you in the other uh, F2 or World Series car across the garage. So it was a different form and mentality of racing. Uh, and you got loads of seat time. And then, you know, you've also competed at Le Mans. Could you talk us through that experience and how that particular race compares to other endurance races? So the first time I went to Le Mans was racing there. So I'd never been to watch. I don't think I'd ever watched a full Le Mans uh, before that. I'd seen bits and parts and, and would watch it if I could in between other events going on um so to actually be there for the first time and realize you know how out of my depth i probably was first going there um, and how crazy an event this was uh just it, the whole thing lasts so long it starts a week before the actual race on a saturday or a sunday with scrutineering in the town and you do your media interviews and you do your team photos um, the scrutiny of the actual car, which is famously done in the town of Le Mans, an incredible, an incredible feeling to to do that there, and yet yeah, really hit home as well. Being with a French team with Alpine, who um, had launched the car, I think that year in 2014, they were effectively becoming a, a subsidiary manufacturer of Renault uh, before they'd then gone to Formula One. So it was a big presence for them there. Uh, being having fully French-speaking teammates, I was the only English one in the team, and and obviously being in France and everything, it was um, straight in at the deep end at a French race with all the French history of the brand and everything. So it just it was a whirlwind of emotions and feelings and and physicality in and out the car and, and the track itself being incredible, especially at night. The last years of it was the last year or two of the open top LMP2, so it was. Um, yeah, it was just incredible. Every single part of it was amazing. And I suppose it, on, on the physicality point, is it a harder circuit to drive because it's, you know, part of it's on the road as well? Does that make any difference or is it? No, actually, as a physical track to drive, if you were to drive Le Mans for half an hour versus drive Suzuka or, or somewhere else for half an hour, it's probably one of the least physical tracks. It's the one that has the most straight, um, you know, other than the Porsche curves, most of the corners are braking, stop, turn, go, and there's there's not a lot physically to it. But the fact that you do so much running over the week, it tends to be super hot in summer, and, and they're now closed cockpits. Um, and for the kind of eight of, or nine, eight of the years that I raced at Le Mans, they were all no AC, no kind of aircon cars or whatever in there, so it was extremely hot. It's more the mental challenge, Le Mans, than anything else. Yes, you're physically tired because you've been in the car kind of most of the week and these night qualifyings go on till um, midnight and you're up late every single day pretty much up until the day before the race. But it's the mental side of it. It's keeping that mental energy for those eight, nine days and with everything that's going on and trying to distract you outside of the race as well. And then moving towards sort of the historic racing that you've been quite heavily involved in, it looked like you were having a lot of fun at Revival a few months back in that two-litre Porsche Cup car sliding it, sliding it around the circuit. As a driver, are you able to enjoy driving those cars a bit more than some of the more modern cars because of their sort of rudimentary setup? 
yeah, totally. It's exactly that. And I've got to say, I've, I've just fallen in love with the classic racing in the last two years. I, I literally came into it two years ago um, through meeting, um, well, I did one Cortina race a while ago through through a contact. It was just a total one-off. And then properly got into it through meeting um, a, a now friend called Guy uh, during a supercar trip. And we were in Barcelona and we were just sat next to each other um, at a black tie event. And we ended up doing a coaching session and racing session together. And then ever since then, I've been driving a few different classics from the 2-litre cup to the to the E-type to Mars Endurance Racing Legends and even classic F1 cars. But the time you've got, I think the baseline of knowledge of driving all these different cars over the last 20 years or so means they're not easier to drive. You just have more time to think, you know, in a little two litre cup car, you're not quite going the same speed as an LMP1 car. So you've got more time to, to think and play. And I just love the lack of grip that they've got compared to slicks. It's just so enjoyable. The POV that you put on your Instagram looks fantastic. You just sort of turning left to go right and everything is yeah. brilliant. They're not the quickest laps normally. Normally pick the third quickest lap, which looks the best. <laughs> and then you sort of touched on it there, racing the historic F1 cars as well. And you actually won the Gulf Historic Grand Prix in Dubai, driving James Hunt's race-winning Hesketh. Could you tell us a little bit about that experience and overall race weekend? Yeah, that's an incredible event. It's it's only been going two years, that one. And again, a, a chance meet turned into um, a drive opportunity for the owner who runs that event, um, Fred, and, and has that original car, his first ever race-winning Formula One car. So um, it was very, very cool to see my name put as a sticker underneath his name with the British flag and having the same middle name. And um, maybe that's why I ended up in it. He just thought it would fit. But um, it, it was an amazing car to drive, an amazing event, which is run so well i think it's one of my favorite historic if not my favorite historic event to go to equal to if not um, more than the revival just because of the relaxed atmosphere of it and the high quality nature of the cars that are there the way that it's run the events that go on in the evening and the people that that come it's so fun so warm so welcoming that golf historic but um yeah purely driving that car it's it's just a, a go-kart with a load of power. You know, the, the aero does some effect, but for the amount of wing that you see visually, it's, uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't do too much. So you can really slide that thing round, which is, which is quite crazy to think. But, I mean, anything I get into, I'll try and drive it as quick as I can and as safely looking after it for the customers I can. But I, don't, I tend not to think of the history too much once I'm in the car. I just want to drive it as quick as possible. <laughs> Yeah, I can imagine that could sort of cloud things a little bit when you're sort of so worried about the, the significance of the car you're driving and then, you know, your ability to then push it uh, to the limit, that sort of thing. Yeah, it does. Um, you see that a lot in the revival with these 250 GTOs and these 40, 50, 60 million dollar cars that, mm. you know, you wonder, oh, my God, how can he be going side by side with him driving that car? But to a point, you have to drive it a little bit subconsciously and rely on your talent. Mm. If you start driving it, at 80%, that's normally when mistakes come in. So I think that's why you see at the revival such crazy racing because um, generally the drivers that are in them are incredibly talented. And on top of that, generally the owners are quite encouraging. You know, they want to see their car at the front. So they they tell us to go help the leather. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's, I think that's the magic of those events as well is the fact that they're not being driven at sort of 80%. They are being pushed so hard um, as a spectator. It's exactly what you want to see as well. And then obviously sort of going back to the more modern motorsport, obviously technology and innovation play such a huge role 
what are some of the latest advancements that have had the biggest impact on your racing? Latest advancements. I mean, in terms of the actual cars themselves, they're always evolving. It's regulation dependent on what we can and can't use. There's a lot of things that are out there, um, electronic system wise and, and, and hybrid deployment wise that totally depend on the series that you're racing in. Uh, I mean, certainly Formula E is quite a good place for testing those new innovations with, with the amount of power they get from such a small uh, energy block on, on the front of the car, powering the front wheels and then using that also for the braking and recovery systems. The last three, four years, I'd say, of Formula E, the technology there has incredibly advanced in how quickly their lap times have grown. Um, and it wasn't that long ago that they were having to use two cars for one race, and, and now they can use one and make the race three times as long as it used to be. But I'd say the development also on the side of things such as, I know it sounds silly, but it's, it's maybe not performance enhancing, but well, it is, is the quality of the cameras and data and speed of which that transmits around the world. So for instance, the simulators, the, the F1 guys will have someone live on the sim in the UK while the drivers in the actual F1 cars are the other side of the planet going out for qualifying and they'll live trace the simulator data over the actual live trace of the car video um, and can data coming through at the same time. And one of those guys on the pit wall's job is to see if it's worth doing a gearbox change on the sim to make sure it's worthwhile changing it in real life if they've got time between qualies or practices at the track. From a coaching side as well, the, the things such as VBOX have come on incredibly well. So the, the data and video you can get as an amateur, in inverted commas, um, racing driver is unbelievable. So the old school days of coaching, of standing on a grass bank with a stopwatch and watching one corner at a time, now you can see absolutely everything for uh, for minimal investment, uh, which is incredible. I mean, these VBOX softwares that, that Julian and the guys at VBOX have created are, are so helpful for these guys finding the time and accelerating your progress of learning. And then you've also done quite a lot of testing and development work for manufacturers as well, you know, such as Koenigsegg, BAC. How involved were you in those projects and what kind of work does that entail? Well, not so much Koenigsegg, but definitely with BAC, some speed runs with uh, SSC Tuatara in the past. I've uh, done a lot with uh, and continue to now with a brand called W Motors in the UAE who make police vehicles and, and the not so exciting road car electric vehicles that you see all the way up to their hypercars. With BAC, I was with them for, I think, six or seven years and continue to every now and then when they have like a speed run or record they need to do, um, do some driving for them. But think at one point i'm not sure how many cars i've built now but the, the first six seven years i was with them i'd driven all 130 cars that had been produced worldwide at that point so you know, every single one that came off the line um we'd do a shakedown on we take it to liverpool airport we would do uh, get to drive up and down the runway on there to bed in the brakes and the electronic systems and check everything's working then do their road test drive before they then get shipped around the world so very heavily involved on that side, which was great fun, and, and BAC are a, a great company making great cars. And now with uh, W Motors, uh, brand in the UAE, whose um, famous car in the Fast and Furious jumped out the side of a building is what they're most well known for. Um, yeah, I know the one. Is it a Lycan? Is it? A, that was yeah. that was the Lycan, yes. And and now they have the Veneers, which gets shipped around Asia, and now something called the Gaiats, which are their big swap VIP and police cars. So it's. it's I find it quite interesting getting involved on the non-supercar side of 
test driving as well because um, it's not something normally you dabble into and you always learn something new. Yeah, absolutely. And then you also did some some stunt driving as well for the, like the Mission Impossible movies. Could you talk us through some of the most memorable moments from being on set? Ah, oh, the most memorable moments. So it always sounds more glamorous than it is. So you've got you've you've got um, there are some funny stories. So um, I've done stunt driving for yeah for a couple of Mission Impossible films, Men in Black, uh, The Mummy, and a couple of other of these films. Sometimes you wouldn't even think you need stunt drivers for. You think, oh, why does why does the mummy with Tom Cruise need a stunt driver? But um, a lot of these uh, vehicles or alien style vehicles um, beneath the CGI is, is an actual car or stunt driver doing stunts. So, you know, one minute we can be, you know, drifting through the streets of London in, in a car and the next minute we're in a London taxi cab going five mile an hour up and down a road for, for a week straight. So it's, uh, it's not always the exciting uh, driving backwards down a set of stairs and flipping and exploding because um, I ignorantly, when I first came into that world of stunt driving, you know, was right. Okay. Where's, where's the car? Where's the ramp? What jump are we going to do first? And of course, in a film set or in a scene that has, let's say for instance, in, in the last mission impossible, you're, you're driving over actually, sorry, I think that was for the mummy. You're driving over uh, London bridge and, Every single human uh, vehicle, uh, everything in the water, in the air, has to be a, a stunt vehicle, which when I watch a film or watched in the past before being involved in that side of the world, you just think, oh, that's the chase car and that's the stunt film. And you don't even think about everything else and all the cyclists and people around. But of course, there's hundreds of, of stunt drivers and stunt people involved in these films. So sometimes you end up in a, in, in a cool car doing the cool job. Sometimes you end up as... One of the background, uh, one of the background people making sure that you don't hit a London bus in your London taxi cab and wearing a funny wig. But I, I remember one of the Mission Impossible scenes was was six, I think it was six figures a take, and it was central London, and we only had three takes to do it because um, we were Lon- using London Bridge at the time. We did all three takes. Oh, amazing! We all went to go and watch the film, and it wasn't even in film, and we just thought. Wow, I mean, the investment that goes into making that. There was like three helicopters in the air, two boats in the water, taxis and buses and and stunt cars all over the bridge. Um, But yeah, unless it's perfect, they don't put it in. And what's it like taking direction as well? You sort of go in, you know, being the the racing driver and then all of a sudden you're being told how how to drive. Oh, I'm I'm all for taking direction, especially especially in a new world like that. I mean, it's so different and the accuracy that you've got to have, especially for um, the guys doing the, the, the main stunts in the hero cars, for instance, chasing, let's say Tom Cruise is on a bike and you're, you're chasing in a um, the hero vehicle, the main vehicle you're, you're sometimes in like, let's say for example, London again, you're in a, a main city and you're driving and sliding around a street that literally in four or five hours, because they tend to be in the middle of the night when they're closed down, will be a Pret-a-Manger, which will be open at 7am and, and needs to not have its window smashed in by Alexis, you know? So it's, um, there's a lot of pressure there. So you definitely take direction from the guys that have been doing it over the years. And there's some incredible people that are involved in that. So although a lot of racing drivers now do it, uh, we definitely take direction from the people that have, these professional stunt drivers um, and stunt directors that have been doing it for years, because uh, yes, we've got the reactions and the skills to be quick and normally very good car control, but it's uh, it's applying all of that in these specific situations that are normally you only get one or two chances at. Yeah, especially if it's sort of hundreds of thousands of take, you probably uh, yeah want to make yeah. sure you get it right. Yes. Um, 
And I think uh, I'm right in saying that going on to sort of your dream car was a, was a 1967 Shelby Mustang Eleanor. Why do you love that car so much? Was it everything that you hoped it would be? And does it have anything to do with Gone in 60 Seconds? It has everything to do with Gone in 60 Seconds. And it was on my list of favorite films, along with a load of other incredibly corny films, such as Driven. I don't know if you've ever seen that with Sylvester Stallone and it, all the IndyCar, which is renowned for being hilariously inaccurate and crashes that last 30 seconds flipping into rivers 10 miles away from the track and all sorts. But um, yeah, back to the car that it was just, it became an absolute dream car of mine just from seeing a little bit from Bullet, but it was before mm. my time, but more gone in 60 seconds. It visually absolutely lives up to, and, and to the years lives up to that car uh, to drive. It's absolutely diabolical, but just what you'd expect from drum brakes, leaf spring, <laughs> leaf spring suspension and, yeah. you know, sat in the garage for 90% of the year. But um, yeah, it's just a, a gorgeous looking thing. And will that, that is that sort of a, a lifer car? You're not going to get rid of that one anytime soon? No, not anytime soon. No, I think, I think it's going to be a lifer car really, which it's funny because it's not like any other cars that I particularly like. And, I'm not a massive American muscle fan towards any other kind of cars, but that one just has its own unique spot. Yeah, no, it does look fantastic. I've seen the, the pictures on your Instagram. It's uh, Yeah, there's, there's definitely something about American muscle cars that does appeal um, for sure. So no, it's a cool car. And then, you know, looking back on your racing career, what do you consider to be some of your highlights and why? I mean, it's been an incredible journey and continues to be highlights-wise Formula 3 was one of my favourite years um, racing, that particular car. And you always think at the time when you're in it that you're in the best year with the best car. But actually reflecting you know, 10, 15 years on and speaking to other people who did F3 before, during and after that time, um, it's actually an honour to, to, to know that actually in that year, in that era of F3, everyone still recognises those kind of 2010 um, the Lara's as being the best F3 cars that were just the last year of of open engines with Mercedes and VW fighting um, open aero people developing their own aero parts on F3 cars and, and the year where British started going to uh, tracks such as Hockenheim and Spa and Nürburgring and, and having grids of 30 and just incredible people on the grids as well from John Verne to James Collado, Felipe Nazar, just Ericsson full of amazing name uh, alexander sims i mean it just go i mean the whole depth of the field was unbelievable um so that was probably one of my favorite cars to drive and also favorite years in terms of of success and enjoyment and it was right on that cusp before it became a living so it was still enjoyable and had a little bit less pressure and there wasn't any factory contract although i, I was made mercedes supported with engines there was no factory direct link and that had that relax you're still a kid racing type feel first time racing at monaco in a world series that was incredible um definitely a pinch myself moment indy lights at the indy 500 weekend getting to drive that track as well um doing ovals uh which i don't think i would do again but then again if someone called tomorrow and said you've got an indy 500 seat i'd be there so um we all say Why that with the ovals what's wrong with the ovals why not um look if i was in if i was in a top team in a top car with a chance of winning then yes a little bit of sense of helplessness with the ovals when you've not got the right car underneath you that then the, there's no other time where i've been in a race car 
um, other than top speed runs in a, in a race car where I think about the risk benefit. I just, cars are safe, tracks are safe now. I'm happy with the amount of risk there are. I just do not think about it. I just race as quick as I can. But I found when I was doing the ovals, I was thinking about the risk. Therefore, all of a sudden, I'm driving slightly more consciously. And if you leave a hundredth on the table, then that's going to be two rows at the Indy 500, for instance. So the risk became more of a factor for me. So if you're in a car that can't do it, or, or you're a driver that isn't that good on ovals, for instance, then the risk versus reward scale completely changes. And, and for me, my first ever oval was at Vegas when Dan Weldon passed away. And he was a an English guy trying to do or already doing what I wanted to achieve um, when I moved to America and went into Indy Lights. I then had a couple of bad crashes on ovals as well. Um, didn't break anything crazy, but enough to, you know, smash the car up and set it on fire and, and have a few uh, kind of wake up calls to think, Yeah, uh, do I enjoy the oval reward versus the risk? And, and the answer ended up being no. So um, the great thing about IndyCar is people still do road course packages where you know you share with for instance ed carpenter sometimes share with like a connor daly and he'll do the ovals and one will do the street courses so that part's really cool so that i would still do i think and then looking ahead what are your goals and aspirations for your racing career in the coming years and are there any sort of specific races or achievements you've got your sights set on yeah i think le mans is still the main goal to try and to try and win um we've been lucky enough to get a podium there and we won the european le mans championship like you said but we uh ideally need to be uh winning the actual race it's a little bit like the the indycar uh series you know people remember the indy 500 winner sometimes more than the actual series winner and you ask a lot of people what would you rather win indy 500 or the championship or le mans or the championship the answer tends to be the standalone race Interestingly enough, it doesn't happen with Formula One, whether you ask them about Monaco or Formula One. It's definitely always the world championship in Formula One. But um, the aspiration is to stay in the top level of motorsport, being Le Mans and endurance racing for as long as possible. Um, I get to do all these amazing classic races and and GT races on the side because of being at that top level and doing well. But um, we've got to make sure that we've got a a team to do it with. So I've, I've taken a year out of at the World Endurance Championship and, and trying to make sure that when I do get back into it, I'm in a, a team that's capable of winning. And then we are sort of coming up on time. So I'm just going to ask a few quick fire questions, if I may. Do you have an ultimate driving road slash car combo? Driving road, if it was uh, one of two, um, Razel Kamer Jebel Jace in the UAE is an amazing road. We've had that closed down a few times and it's like you can see all the way through the corners it's got hairpins it's got fast turns it's it's like 20k long so it lasts a long time all the way to the top and it's three four lanes wide brand new tarmac that's amazing also red rock road which is a beautiful road um, which we sometimes take on this supercar tour towards uh, monaco is, is stunning and in what car maybe a 458 speciale because it sounds amazing it can drift really nicely it's kind of modern enough to still have quick gear changes and, and, and be comfortable to drive, but also uh, delivers when you need it to. And do you have a favorite circuit that you've driven? Favorite circuit is probably always going to be Spa. In terms of unique circuits, the Macau street circuit we did in F3 is my favorite street circuit and probably the most unique kind of side answer. Um, but as obvious as it sounds, um, I think I'm, I think I must have driven almost 200 tracks now, and Spa is still number one. So we're incredibly lucky in Europe and in England that we're 
this close to that track. Yeah, we've had that question asked to a few of the guests, and, and pretty much everyone who's who's a driver has said Spa. Right, interesting. <laughs> Literally, yeah. And then as a driver coach, is there one standout technique or alteration of driving style that is most effective at making someone a better driver? Yeah, braking later. It's the hardest thing to do and the uh, the thing that most people don't tend to want to do because it's easy on a simulator to brake nice and late, but um, tends to be when you actually get on the real track, you brake a bit early, you see where the car stops, you safely get on the throttle, you then induce a load of pitch into the car, you create this kind of consistent 20% throttle through the corner, which gives a balance which actually isn't inherently in the car that you're inducing it, uh, and then you feel like you can't make it through the corner because you've driven through it too quick. So then you break even early the next lap. So it's um, unfortunately the hardest part to fix is is also the most dangerous part. But mm. everything is solved when you get the braking right. The rest of the corner becomes a bit easier. Is it a case of every lap just braking a little bit later if, if you've made it the, the lap before? Is yeah. That, yeah, a lot of it is self-teaching that you don't spend the whole session doing the same thing. You know, motorsport's expensive, so you've got to make use of every lap. Mm. Um, obviously, enjoying it's a big a big factor, but, but if you want to learn, you've got to push yourself every lap and picking tracks that are nice and safe, like a Silverstone, where you've got a lot of runoff, and picking a corner to, to try, let's say, stow at the end of a big straight with a big braking zone, but you've got a load of tarmac and gravel after it. That's probably one of the best places to try a really heavy braking as long as you're in a safe environment and car to do it in. Because then, you know, if you if you get it wrong by 50 meters, you're still not going to end up in a wall. So it's um, you just can't can't get too stuck in the same place. Otherwise, you uh, you'll uh, waste the whole day braking the same point. Yeah. And then finally, if you could pick any two drivers to race Le Mans with, who would you pick and why? Oh, this is probably one that I'm going to need time to. Any two drivers to race Le Mans? Tom Christensen. Okay, that's the easy one out of the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, who else? Tom Christensen. And the problem is, is now I've got about 20 different names rolling through <laughs> my mind. Uh, you can take all, us. That are all as qualified and good as each other. I would probably... Okay, if I ignore or I've got I've got a Tom Christensen who's got history and, and, and we've ticked a famous box name. If I'm now picking someone that I've raced with, I would probably pick my teammate from Alpine LMP two, which was Paul Chatin, who at the time was a silver driver, but ever since then has done incredible things in prototypes. Um He's also a friend and, you know, really good with, with data and learning off and, and, and someone that you'd enjoy driving with and would be very reliable and fast. So probably those two. So you've got a kind of an old statesman who knows his tricks and an and up and coming slash already there driver. And then I guess to put a bit of a spin on that, is there an era as well that you would have liked to have raced in if you could pick any era to compete at the moment? For Le Mans... If I was in the GT category, then probably the 2000s. Okay. For the LMP category, I'd probably say I've been incredibly lucky that I've probably already been in the era that I'd want to race in, looking back on all of them. In terms of safety versus speed, just on the cusp around and before and just after the hybrid era of these LMP1 cars before it became hypercar, um, I think was the best era, coolest looking, most, you know, rocket spaceship post-the-wall looking cars you can drive if it's gts then probably more 2000s um okay. but uh yeah i think yeah i think modern modern current lmp1 cars and 2000s gts 
Fantastic. Unfortunately, that, that is all we have time for, Ollie. But yeah, thanks so much for coming on. It's been great to chat. Thank you very much. No, no problem. Thank you so much for having me. It's great fun.